Welcome to The Mushroom's Apprentice. Today, I'm going to talk about how we are manipulated and steered to think, believe, and act, which satisfies the whims of the few who are in charge of directing the many. This is not new. Leaders through time have used multiple forms of manipulation to steer the populace. Violence isn't always needed if you can induce the herd into an emotional state to where they will take it on themselves to carry out the plans of their overlords. A great example is the witch mania of Europe, where thousands of women and men were accused of witchcraft and tortured and burned alive. That could not have taken place without first whipping the masses into mindless fear and suspicion through repetitive and relentless propaganda. Well, nothing has changed, of course, because manipulation works on an unsuspecting populace. And today we are saturated in propaganda and mind control at every turn. And the tools for that are more sophisticated than ever. So I'm going to explore some of the classic techniques of social control, including an exploration into the early school system and how it developed into an indoctrination mechanism to mold the minds of the young and turn them into cogs in the wheel of industry and technology. Now, Terence McKenna used to talk about how mushrooms can delete the virus in the hard drive of the mind. But I discovered in my first few years of working with a mushroom that just because a person engages psychedelics, it does not mean that their mind is now open and free and they can see the matrix and the orchestrations of control with crystal clarity. On the contrary, the most indoctrinated people I spoke with in those early years were attendees at psychedelic conferences. I was just starting my study of the deeper tenets of law at that time, and I was surprised to hear how closed certain people were to that information, which is not taught in our schools, nor is it discussed in mainstream media, unless it is to vilify people who want autonomy from the corporate civil system we find ourselves in. Well, I was quite vociferously rebuffed by someone who is a leader in that world who lectured me about discussing these deeper tenets of law and considering them as probable pathways to freedom of choice, perhaps. I will tell you that the best psychedelic conference I ever attended was put on by the late Kai Wingo outside of Detroit. She invited me to speak and the attendees and the speakers were so warm and friendly, and they were dialed in. There was no political correctness, no virtue signaling, just sharp, good-hearted people who wanted to come together and learn and share. And the people I spoke with knew how predatory and controlling the system was. They saw right through the media and government manipulation. And the conversations I had with those people were very inspiring. I remember talking with this awesome guy who had been studying the deeper tenets of law for years. He had no driver's license. And I remember he said, I'm a black man. I get pulled over all the time. Well, he knew how to stand on his rights honorably, and he ably navigated the system because of the knowledge that he gave to himself through his study of law and how the system works. This guy was not caught up in the propaganda machine. He could see right through it. Well, if we're going to wake up, 
we have to recognize propaganda and we have to know how it's used and implemented. We also need to have an understanding of how the mind works because those who utilize those elements of control understand the inner workings of the psyche far better than the average person. An excellent book to read on the subject is by French social scientist Gustave Le Bon, who wrote The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. His book explores crowd psychology and the interesting loss of individuality, intellect, and common sense by the people who compose the crowd. The book gives an overview of how crowds are manipulated to behave in a certain way. And that book was read by a number of political tyrants who utilized the information he shared to their advantage. LeBone defines a crowd as, quote, in its ordinary sense of the word, crowd means a gathering of individuals of whatever nationality, profession, or sex, and whatever be the chances of what brought them together, end quote. He then writes, from a psychological point of view, the expression crowd assumes quite a different signification, end quote. He goes on to say that under specific circumstances, a crowd expresses in a way that is very different from the individuals composing it. Their thoughts and emotions have been directed by an outside influence, usually a leader of some nature or through media influence today, aka propaganda or mind control. <laughs> in this kind of crowd, the individual's identity disappears and he or she becomes possessed by the group mind Le Bon calls the collective mind, which has its own clearly defined characteristics. And the crowd doesn't have to be located in one specific area. Le Bon writes, quote, thousands of isolated individuals may acquire at certain moments and under the influence of, of certain violent emotions, such, for example, a great national event, the characteristics of a psychological crowd. At certain moments, half a dozen men might constitute a psychological crowd, which may not happen in the case of hundreds of men gathered together by accident. On the other hand, an entire nation, though there may be no visible agglomeration, may become a crowd under the action of certain influences." End quote. Well, think about the intensity of these most recent three years and the collective psychosis of fear that grip people and cause them to say and do things they would not otherwise. And of course, this understanding has been used on the masses for God knows how long, where an event is created and staged by those in power to incite public outcry, thereby making it very easy to direct the citizenry into war or to give up certain basic rights in exchange for safety, etc. LeBon discusses three causes that create the crowd or horde or mob. The first cause is anonymity. Within the crowd he's speaking to, there is a sense of anonymity. It's that sense of safety in numbers, and it gives the individual who's been stirred into a particular mind state a delusional sense of power. And that opens the door for the darker parts of the individual that are normally suppressed to come forth, or the heroic parts that might not be expressed otherwise. All sense of individuality, moral fabric, principles, and personal responsibility 
disappear, as does rational thinking. And the individual, swept up in the moment, dissolves into the crowd and behaves in ways he never would on his own. The second cause is contagion. The contagion is the almost hypnotic or trance state in which the crowd assumes to where, in Le Bon's words, quote, every sentiment and act is contagious and contagious to such a degree that an individual readily sacrifices his personal interest. This is an aptitude very contrary to his nature and of which a man is scarcely capable except when he makes part of a crowd, end quote. The third cause is suggestibility, and oh boy, do those who wield power capitalize on that through social media, entertainment, so-called news, etc., where they use keywords and phrases that elicit emotion from those viewing or listening. Le Bon uses the metaphor of the hypnotist who can bring people into a state of mind where they do things contrary to their personality. And these suggestions are not complex. They're actually very simple. And they're exaggerated by the force of emotion that the crowd is feeling. And once that particular uh, suggestion takes root within a crowd, it spreads through contagion and it intensifies. Leaders understand this very well, whether they are politicians or religious leaders, corporate leaders, etc. They will capitalize on that with the use of emotionally manipulative rhetoric that incites a passionate response in the crowd. And in this day and age, the crowd doesn't have to be assembled, as Le Bon stated. They can push this manipulation into the minds of those who regularly tune into their devices and their televisions. Le Bon writes, quote, the most careful observations seem to prove that an individual emerged for some length of time in a crowd in action soon finds himself either in consequence of the magnetic influence given out by the crowd or by some other cause of which we are ignorant in a special state which much resembles the state of fascination in which the hypnotized individual finds himself in the hands of the hypnotizer. The activity of the brain being paralyzed in the case of the hypnotized subject, the latter becomes the slave of all the unconscious activities of his spinal cord, which the hypnotizer directs at will. The conscious personality has entirely vanished. Will and discernment are lost. All feelings and thoughts are bent in the direction determined by the hypnotizer." End quote. In the foreword to Charles McKay's book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, the author quotes Schiller, writing, quote, anyone taken as an individual is tolerably sensible and reasonable. As a member of a crowd, he at once becomes a blockhead, end quote. Well, Le Bon goes on to say, quote, moreover, by the mere fact that he forms an organized crowd, a man descends several rungs in the ladder of civilization. Isolated, he may be a cultivated individual. In a crowd, he is a barbarian, that is, a creature acting by instinct. He possesses the spontaneity, the violence, the ferocity, 
and also the enthusiasm and heroism of primitive beings whom he further tends to resemble by the facility with which he allows himself to be impressed by words and images, which would be entirely without action on each of the isolated individuals composing the crowd, and to be induced to commit acts contrary to his most obvious interests and his best known habits. An individual in a crowd is a grain of sand amid other grains of sand, which the wind stirs up at will." End quote. Well, that wind, of course, will be whoever is influencing and directing that crowd. Le Bon says that the crowd is intellectually inferior to the isolated individual. In fact, Le Bon writes that as soon as the individual joins the crowd, quote, his intellect standard is immediately and considerably lowered, end quote. Depending on the situation, the crowd can be criminal and commit appalling acts, or it can be heroic and achieve, and achieve extraordinary feats. And you can have an individual in the crowd who is a criminal in his day-to-day -day life, but as part of the crowd, he's swept up in the possessing forces of that crowd that, in this case, is part of a crowd on its way to do something heroic and noble. And that criminal is temporarily endowed with the principles of morality, just as someone with a kind and moral nature can turn into an absolute psychopath when swept up in a violent mob. So the crowd can be either worse or better than the individual. A crowd can be swept up by a particular sentiment or ideology that induces them into a heightened state of enthusiasm to where they risk life and limb for glory and honor. And Le Bon writes that the notion of impossibility disappears completely for the individual in a crowd so that they will put their life on the line unthinkingly for, in Le Bon's words, quote, beliefs, ideas, and phrases that they scarcely understand, end quote. Le Bon states that in terms of leadership, crowds usually favor the tyrant and the heroes most dear to the crowd resemble a Caesar type of personality. And that is the nature of the crowd in his observation, that they are submissive to an authoritarian figure and they will revolt against a feeble leader. Le Bon writes, quote, the masses have never thirsted after truth. Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim, end quote. Now, my late teacher, Dr. Brew Joy, spoke of the transpersonal forces that would possess crowds, and he used the example of wartime, where soldiers were caught up in the collective spirit or trance of war, which, similar to what Le Bon was saying about the individual within the crowd, the soldiers would commit acts they would never on their own commit. Now, you could say they were doing their job as soldiers, but Brew noted the psychological state that war induces to where the individual is no longer held within the boundaries of their personality and corresponding morals, and is now acting as part of a group that is under the collective spell of whatever is the inducement to war. The psychological traits of the crowd are explored by Le Bon in detail. A crowd is by nature irascible and it has no impulse control. It's unpredictable due to its emotional impulsiveness, which can make it very dangerous. 
Another characteristic of a crowd is its domineering force. And a crowd will demonstrate very harsh intolerance to anything that is in contradiction to its beliefs. Crowds are also incapable of reason, which makes them open to suggestion and the powers of the imagination. And the imagination can direct a crowd into seeing things that aren't really there or cause the crowd to act out based on what their imagination tells them rather than what the facts clearly show. Morally, a crowd can commit unthinkable acts of evil or it can commit extraordinary acts of altruism and bravery. Le Bon goes on to explore what influences the psychological attributes of a crowd and how it comes to its opinions and beliefs. He states that there are two determining factors, remote factors and immediate factors. Remote factors are that which has been put forth stealthily to cause the idea to take shape in the listener's mind so that the crowd is now primed to adopt certain convictions and reject everything contrary to this new belief. An example is the entertainment industry, which slips ideologies into film, sitcoms, children's television, it is so seamless and it goes unnoticed to where the ground of the mind is then prepared to adopt and express certain ideas and convictions that were not part of the collective mindset prior to that. Another example is modern dictionaries where word meanings today are being changed and the examples of those meanings are now reflecting the current propaganda, thereby normalizing certain ideologies in something as maybe innocent as a dictionary. So the remote factors set the stage and you have to have them in place before the immediate factors come into play. LeBone writes, quote, the immediate factors are, are those which, coming on the top of this long preparatory working, in whose absence they would remain without effect, serve as the source of active persuasion on crowds. That is, they are the factors which cause the idea to take shape and set it loose with all its consequences. The resolutions by which collectivities are suddenly carried away arise out of these immediate factors. It is due to them that a riot breaks out or a strike is depended, is decided upon, end quote. Well, how are the immediate factors of active persuasion created? The use of image on the crowd is very highly effective. And today we are bombarded by images on billboards, magazines, the internet, store windows, YouTube. <laughs> the image can also be spoken into the imagination of the crowd by a gifted speaker. And again, LeBone writes, the power of words is bound up with the images they evoke and is quite independent of their real significance. Words whose sense is the most ill-defined are sometimes those that possess the most influence. Such, for example, are the terms democracy, socialism, equality, liberty, etc., whose meaning is so vague that bulky volumes do not suffice to precisely fix it. Yet it is certain that a truly magical power is attached to those short syllables as if they contain the solution to all problems. They synthesize the most diverse unconscious aspirations and the hope of their realization. He then writes, and this is so key, quote, 
Reason and arguments are incapable of combating certain words and formulas. They are uttered with solemnity in the presence of crowds. And as soon as they have been pronounced, an expression of respect is visible on every countenance and all heads are bowed. By many, they are considered as natural forces, as supernatural powers. They evoke grandiose and vague images in men's minds. But this very vagueness that wraps them in obscurity augments their mysterious power, end quote. Well, think about how leaders and influencers steer the masses with slogans and keywords and passionate rhetoric. And this shite is repeated over and over ad nauseum without presenting or allowing any rational argument to the contrary. We saw that played out in 2020 through 2022, and I don't think I need to repeat the catchy slogans that were hammered into our heads 24-7 and the ominous imagery, all of which was designed to engender rampant fear and compliance among the masses. Le Bon goes on to explore the means of persuasion leaders use to get the masses to acquiesce. He explains that as soon as people form a crowd, they instinctively respond to the authority of a chief of some kind. And he writes, quote, in the case of human crowds, the chief is often nothing more than a ringleader or agitator, but as such, he plays a considerable part. His will is the nucleus around which the opinions of the crowd are grouped. A crowd is a servile flock that is incapable of ever doing without a master. The leader has most often started as one of the led. He has himself been hypnotized by the idea whose apostle he has since become. It has taken possession of him to such a degree that everything outside it vanishes and that every contrary opinion appears to him an error or a superstition. An example in point is Robespierre, hypnotized by the philosophical ideas of Rousseau and employing the methods of the Inquisition to propagate them." End quote. Now think about the colleges in this country that have turned into Marxist indoctrination camps. The minds of our bright young men and women have been taken over by exactly the people Le Bon speaks to those who themselves have been hypnotized by whatever the ideology and are now strident apostles of the creed who induct the new young arrivals into their cult. And we end up with bright young people who are intolerant of any opinion or God forbid fact that challenges their newfound belief system. They have lost the ability to think critically and reason and they are utterly swept up in the group mind. Le Bon has more to say about the leaders of these crowds, and he is scathingly accurate in his assessment. He writes, quote, the leaders we speak of are more frequently men of action than thinkers. They are not gifted with keen foresight, nor could they be, as this quality generally conduces to doubt and inactivity. They are especially recruited from the ranks of those morbidly nervous, excitable, half-deranged persons who are bordering on madness. However absurd may be the idea they uphold or the goal they pursue, their convictions are so strong that all reasoning is lost upon them. They sacrifice their personal interest, their family, everything. The intensity of their faith 
gives great power of suggestion to their words. The multitude is always ready to listen to the strong-willed man who knows how to impose himself upon it. Men gathered in a crowd lose all force of will and turn instinctively to the person who possesses the quality they lack, end quote. And I'll read just a bit more because this is so powerfully relevant. Quote, these leaders are often subtle rhetoricians, seeking only their own personal interest and endeavoring to persuade by flattering base instincts. The influence they can assert in this matter, manner may be very great, but it is also always ephemeral. The men of ardent convictions who have stirred the soul of crowds have only exercised their fascination after having been themselves fascinated, first of all, by a creed. They are then able to call up in the souls of their fellows that formidable force known as faith, which renders a man the absolute slave of his dream. Of all the forces of humanity, faith has always been one of the most tremendous and the gospel rightly attributes to it the power of moving mountains, end quote. Le Bon states that no matter what social sphere a man hails from, the minute he joins a group, he quickly falls under the influence of a leader. How interesting now that individuals are looked down on in the U.S. as the country seeks deeper into the cold grip of collectivism in which the needs of the group are prioritized over the rights of the individual. And these last few years are ultimately serving as the remote factors Le Bon speaks to, preparing the ground of mind to ultimately accept totalitarianism for the greater good, of course. Now, Le Bon writes that leaders are divided into two distinguishable classes. You have the energetic, dynamic leaders who can express will at certain times, and then you have the rare leaders who possess an enduring strength of will. The energetic, dynamic leaders are used mostly to direct a violent enterprise, and these guys have the power to induct people into either heroism or hellish acts. Le Bon writes that these leaders are a force to be reckoned with, but their dynamism doesn't last. It serves a specific purpose, and when they return to their ordinary lives, they no longer display that strength of will. In fact, they possess an astonishing weakness of character and are impotent when it comes to reflection of character and conduct. The leaders with enduring strength of will are often founders of religions and extraordinary feats of undertakings. Le Bon describes them as possessing an extremely rare force of enduring will that commands everything around it and, quote, nothing resists it, neither nature, gods, nor man, end quote. Le Bon then gives the formula that leaders use to induct the crowd into ideologies and beliefs, and that is done by the use of affirmation, repetition, and contagion. The action of those three expedients is slower than the stirring up of a crowd to get it to storm a building or a barricade, but the effects are long-lasting. These represent the mechanics of influence. Affirmation is always presented in a very simple and easy to understand way so that there's no complex reasoning needed. It's readily accepted and absorbed into the minds of the masses. An example of affirmation is a slogan or a creed or a mantra that infiltrates the mind and becomes accepted as truth. 
affirmation is used to sway the public to accept something in such a simplistic way that there is little to no argument to the contrary. Again, think of all the slogans we were dealt over these last few years and more on their way. You can bet on it. Okay, repetition is how the affirmations are reinforced. We learn by repetition. And LeBon states that repetition drives the information deep into the unconscious, where it becomes embedded to the point where we forget where it even originated. We simply now believe it as self-evident, even if it isn't. You'll see this in advertising, which is pure black magic, and that uses all of this and more to seduce you into the spell. And of course, politics, entertainment, the music industry, education, etc. This calls to mind that famous quote by Joseph Goebbels that states, if you tell a lie enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it, end quote. Well, after a certain thing has been repeated enough times, the third expedient is contagion, where all of a sudden everyone has heard of it. This goes for ideas, trends, fads, sentiments, beliefs, urban legends, emotions, etc., etc. In crowds, the contagion of a particular emotion spreads like wildfire to where you will see a sudden panic where uncontrollable rage explode before your eyes. Those who follow media will end up aligning with whatever the sentiment or belief is that's being promoted to the masses. So even though they are out of proximity to where it originated, they are attuned to the airwaves and receptive to what comes through, making them willing targets for the indoctrination. Le Bon then discusses imitation, which is a consequence of contagion. People instinctively want to fit in, and they will go to great lengths to align themselves with current trends and accepted ideas. Think about college campuses and the pressure on young people to march in lockstep with political correctness or be ostracized and labeled, or how social media pressures people to accept whatever ideology or story is being promoted by making sure that flag or slogan is superimposed over their photograph. With contagion, the masses don't think or reason. They are easily swayed by clever influencers and driven by contagion to where they replicate opinions and behaviors that are not their own and have no logic to them. This results in a homogenized culture of people who cannot or will not think for themselves, but rather are propelled forward by the collective belief, despite the absence of reason and reflection. So affirmation represents the seed that's planted in the fertile ground of mass consciousness. And then repetition is like the hammer that pounds the message deep into the psyche to where it becomes universally accepted as truth, never mind where it actually originated. Contagion is like the disease that spreads rapidly and effectively throughout the populace, whether rich or poor or middle class, the majority of people succumb to it. We have got to work hard to maintain sovereignty of mind. People want to fit in and they will imitate and adopt beliefs and opinions from dynamic influencers, be they politicians, actors, doctors, etc., who use the power of suggestion and emotional contagion to win followers. 
This is where we need to develop critical thinking and independent thought and mediate our emotions because all of that gets activated through the various modes of crowd control. We have to recognize distortion and programming and understand that the best ideas get co-opted and distorted by those who desire to have power over us for whatever reason. In the 20th century, the high priest of mass manipulation was Edward Bernays, who is known as the godfather of propaganda. He developed a particular approach that he called engineered consent. Bernays was the darling of powerful leaders, and he taught them how to, quote, control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing about it, end quote. This guy was diabolically brilliant, and he had a keen understanding of how the psyche works. So he knew that the key to steering the masses was to appeal not to their conscious mind, but to their unconscious. The weapon of propaganda is used to psychologically steer the masses by appealing to their fears and desires, and it works like a charm. And a charm, as you know, is a spell. This is a form of black magic. And propaganda continues to assault us all day, every day, through so-called news, entertainment, social media, education, et cetera, et cetera. And it is highly effective for steering a crowd or an entire population. Those who don't recognize propaganda, and unfortunately that is the great majority of people, are doomed to fall prey to the whims of both elected and unelected leaders whose intentions are nefarious at best. Now, Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he read everything Uncle Sigmund wrote, and he became a master of psychological manipulation, using all manner of techniques to control the populace. Bernays started out as a journalist, and he worked with the Woodrow Wilson administration during World War I, where he served in the U.S. Committee on Public Information, which was the propaganda arm whose job was to sell the war to the American people as one that would, quote, make the world safe for democracy. How many times have you heard that one? His techniques were so successful that after the war, he figured that if propaganda works during wartime, it should work during peacetime. Over the course of his life, he was unapologetic about his profession, and he spoke openly about using propaganda as a tool for democratic and corporate manipulation of the populace. Now, because the word propaganda had a pejorative association, Bernays simply changed the word propaganda to public relations. We call that rebranding today. Well, Bernays wrote a book in 1928 titled Propaganda, and that book is the manual for social manipulation and control, which Bernays was all for. He strove to manipulate the mind of the masses, not just politically, but in science, art, advertising, education, and more. This book should be required reading for every high school student and every adult, but sadly, most people have never even heard of Edward Bernays. The book will open your eyes to how you're being programmed on every level, everywhere you turn. And once you see that, it loses its power over you, but you have to be able to recognize it because these folks are slick. The opening chapter of his book states, quote, 
The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country, end quote. Well, he would know, wouldn't he? Bernays went on to write, Quote, we are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. Whatever attitude one chooses to take toward this condition, it remains a fact that in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons, a trifling fact fraction of our 120 million, who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind, who harness old social forces and contrive new ways to bind and guide the world." End quote. Now, in the early part of the 20th century, the majority of Americans were quite frugal and tended to purchase what they needed more than what they wanted. This presented a problem for those in industry who sought to expand their companies and gain greater profits. Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers wrote in 1914, quote, any community that lives on staples has relatively few wants. The community that can be trained to desire change, to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed, yields a market to be measured more by desires than by needs. And man's desires can be developed so that they will greatly overshadow his needs." End quote. Well, after studying Freud's work, Bernays theorized that people could be induced into desiring things they don't need through keying into their unconscious desires, whether those desires were to be popular, successful, sexually attractive, et cetera, et cetera. The first big job Bernays got was through the American Tobacco Company in 1929. At that time, it was socially unacceptable for women to smoke cigarettes, which meant the American Tobacco Company was missing out on half the population. So if somehow they could get women to start smoking, that could double their profits. Seeing the potential in getting American women to do that, the president of the American Tobacco Company said, quote, it will be like opening a gold mine right in our front yard. Well, Bernays hired a group of New York socialites to march in the Macy's Day Parade and light up cigarettes. As he had connections in all the right places, Bernays alerted the major newspapers that a group of suffragettes would be marching in the parade and lighting up cigarettes that they called torches of freedom. He made sure to add that the women saw cigarettes as symbols of emancipation and equality with men. That ruse was a huge success and women fell for it. And after that, all the cigarette companies got into the act and directed their ads toward women, exploiting their desire to have more social freedom and autonomy and promoting cigarettes as being soothing and slimming. Now, women, for the most part, weren't accustomed to smoking. So to counter any awkwardness in how to actually smoke in public and look good doing so, the tobacco company Philip Morris sponsored a lecture series for women called The Art of Smoking. This gave women a false sense of power, of course, and ultimately God knows how many of them 
went to their death through lung cancer. At the end of the day, this is business and these companies are about profit, not health. Interestingly, a few years later, Bernays did not want his wife smoking. And by then he was aware of the connection between cancer and smoking. And he would regularly find her cigarettes and break them in half and flush them down the toilet. Now, in order to get Americans to start buying cars, Bernays used the power of association to sell them. A beautiful woman was always shown with the car, which activated the unconscious desire in men for sex. The association was, if you get the car, you get the girl. We have Bernays to thank also for the ubiquitous use of disposable cups, etc. He was hired by Dixie Cups, and he used the power of fear to convince people that only disposable cups were sanitary. And as part of the ad campaign, he founded the Committee for the Study and Promotion of the Sanitary Dispensing of Food and Drink. That man was dastardly brilliant and manipulative, and he understood the psyche better than the average American. He worked for the top brand companies, and he could name his price. He also created propaganda for numerous politicians, and Bernays eventually became one of the most powerful men in America. And you might be interested to know that Bernays actually couldn't stand people, and he called them stupid dopes. Bernays successfully manipulated Americans into desiring instead of needing. He stimulated their desires, and then he satisfied them with the purchase of a product. All right, let's take a further look at how people were being manipulated, managed, and programmed in the early 20th century to think and behave in ways that would serve those in positions of power long into the future. The industrial age was about the mechanization of people and animals, and the name of the game was efficiency and profit. This served to remove people from the small autonomous family business and the custom of apprenticeship and mastery of a craft to the factory, which was a bastion of inhumanity and corruption. Enter Frederick Winslow Taylor who hailed from a wealthy Philadelphia family and became an engineer in the early 20th century. In 1912, he developed Taylorism, which was also known as scientific management because it was thought to be a scientific method of increasing productivity and efficiency in the workplace. Now, the term scientific management was actually coined in 1910 by Louis Brandeis, who was a famous lawyer for the Interstate Commerce Commission rate hearings. He was no stranger to the power of a cleverly devised title or slogan to steer public opinion. So we can see the term scientific management as the affirmation that Le Bon wrote about, followed by the repetition of the term, because of course, everyone was using that term alongside Taylorism, and then the contagion to where scientific management was ubiquitous, having gained national recognition and approval, including in the school system. Quote, what I demand of the worker, Taylor said, is not to produce any longer by his own initiative, but to execute punctiliously the orders given down to their minutest details, end quote. His summary of this new approach to the workplace is one, a regimen of science, not rule of thumb. Two, an emphasis on harmony, not the discord of competition. Three, an insistence on cooperation, not individualism. 
four, a fixation on maximum output, five, the development of each man to his greatest productivity. Now, John Taylor Gatto wrote, quote, scientific management or Taylorism had four characteristics designed to make the worker an interchangeable part of an interchangeable machine making interchangeable parts. Since each quickly found its analog in scientific schooling, let me show them to you. One, a mechanically controlled work pace. Two, the repetition of simple motions. Three, tools and technique selected for the worker. Four, only superficial attention is asked from the worker, just enough to keep up with the moving line. The con connection of all to school procedure is apparent." End quote. Richard Stites, author of Revolutionary Dreams, rightly described Taylor as, quote, an anti-intellectual, a hater of individuals, end quote. Taylorism fragmented the workforce. So rather than a single highly trained individual who could create something from start to finish in their own time and know every nuance of their craft, you instead had a factory full of employees, men, women, and child laborers who were given a single task that was a component of what was being built. And that task was repeated over and over all day long with different people specializing in a different component. But no one person could build that particular product entirely themselves. Through Taylorism, human beings became nothing more than cogs in a wheel in service to the wealthy industrialists. In this system, it was very easy to fire whoever they no longer needed as it was easy to train a new employee in just that particular area of fabrication. Scientific management eliminated the need for skilled labor and it did away with the tradition of apprenticeship of an artisan who would after a period of years become an autonomous master craftsman. Scientific management slash Taylorism standardized labor and the employees were under the ever-present scrutiny of the stopwatch. And that became what we call the assembly line. It was enthusiastically embraced for the decade after 1910. Now, in order to gain profits, human beings had to be turned into machines. And Taylor wrote, quote, in the past, man has been first. In the future, the system will be first, end quote. So these human beings men, women, and children who formed this workforce were the industrial class, and they were the underclass who were thought of as expendable and exploitable. And by the way, when you look at photos of those poor souls working at those factories, you will see the full range of races among them. They were Irish, Scottish, Scandinavian, African-American, Hispanic, etc. The industrial class was multiracial. Poor is poor. And each and every one of those people were thought of as disposable and viewed as being the lowest class. All of them worked under appalling conditions. Check out the photographs of Lewis Hine from 1900 to 1910. He photographed child laborers in factories and in the cotton fields. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. Well. Taylorism didn't limit itself to just the factory. This is science, after all. 
by implementing it in the school system, it was thought that it would not only create more efficiency within the schools, it would also produce compliant and programmed workers for the system. Now, to digress, public school, by the way, did not have the mythic beginning we've been told. Public school came about because of a politician named Horace Mann, who was contacted by the railroad interests in Connecticut, who wanted more control over their workers. So old Horace used his connections to implement the compulsion laws that remove children from the apprentice relationship and the access they had to independent education within their communities. Parents opposed this, and it took years to implement it. In fact, it took 15 years before any other state in the country would do this. Many children were taken by force to these new schools, some tied to donkeys. Parents at that time did not trust the government to take over the education of their children, and they knew this was about control. In his book, The Underground History of American Education, which I highly recommend you read, John Taylor Gatto writes, quote, on the night of June 9th, 1834, a group of prominent men, chiefly engaged in commerce, gathered privately in a Boston drawing room to discuss a scheme of universal schooling. Secretary of this meeting was William Ellery Channing, Horace Mann's own minister, as well as an international figure and the leading Unitarian of his day. The location of the meeting house is not entered into the minutes, nor are the names of the assembly's participants, apart from Channing. Even though the literacy rate in Massachusetts was 98% and in neighboring Connecticut, 99.8%, the assembled businessmen agreed the present system of schooling allowed too much to depend upon chance. It encouraged more entrepreneurial exuberance than the social system could bear. And Taylor writes that the minutes of that meeting are the Appleton Papers collection, and they are found in the Massachusetts Historical Society. Well, the narrative of the day, of course, presented compulsory schooling as a way to educate the poor. But in reality, it was a way to indoctrinate and mold the minds of the young while their parents were coerced into wage labor. The railroads did not want workers who read books and thought critically. They wanted obedient drudges, and government schools were designed to produce just that, especially in the lower classes. In 1872, an article from the U.S. Bureau of Education stated, quote, inculcating knowledge teaches workers to be able to perceive and calculate their grievances, thus making them more redoubtable foes in labor struggles. Such an enabling is bound to retard the growth of industry, end quote. 16 years later, the Senate Committee Report on Education stated, quote, we believe that education is one of the principal causes of discontent of late years, manifesting itself on the laboring classes, end quote. And so public education was and is about answering questions, memorizing government-approved information, and following orders. Rather than cultivate the unique genius in each individual child, this much lauded system of Taylorism used them for experimentation in the name of technological efficiency and scientific progress. Gatto stated that scientism, quote, has no built-in moral breaks to restrain it other than legal jeopardy, end quote. 
John Taylor Gatto was an educator for over 40 years, and he has since passed away, but he was outspoken about the failings of the public school system. And I highly recommend you look up John Taylor Gatto on YouTube and listen to his talks. He was so absolutely brilliant, and his books are essential reading. Now, speaking about Taylorism in the schools, Gatto said, quote, the thinking behind this new kind of education was that you could convert sovereign human beings into human resources by making them incomplete. Unable to think in context, they could be converted into specialist tools for scientific management, end quote. Education theorist William C. Bagley called for, quote, unquestioning obedience in the new 20th century education. And he wrote, this new system would train children for life in 20th century America to fulfill the needs of commerce, industry, and government, end quote. Well, schools were increasingly taken over by business and ideological interests. And again, Gatto writes, quote, in the preface to the classic study on the effects of scientific management on schooling in America, education, and the cult of efficiency, Raymond Callahan explains that when he set out to write, his intent was to explore the origin and development of business values in educational administration, an occurrence he tracks to about 1900. Callahan wanted to know why school administrators had adopted business practices and management parameters of assessment when, quote, education is not a business. The school is not a factory, end quote. Could the inappropriate procedure be explained simply by a familiar process in which ideas and values flow from high status groups to those of lesser distinction? As Callahan put it, quote, it does not take profound knowledge of American education to know that educators are and have been a relatively low status, low power group, end quote. But the degree of intellectual domination shocked him. What was unexpected was the extent not only of the power of business industrial groups, but of the strength of the business ideology and the extreme weakness and vulnerability of school administrators. I had expected more professional autonomy and I was completely unprepared for the extent and degree of capitulation by administrators to whatever demands were made upon them. I was surprised and then dismayed to learn how many decisions they made or were forced to make, not on educational grounds, but as a means of appeasing their critics in order to maintain their positions in the school." End quote. Well, in 1911, a full-scale media assault was inflicted on the early public school system in an anti-intellectualism strategy to move public schooling away from any kind of actual intellectual cultivation in favor of a tailorist, standardized, factory setting of regimented lessons and behaviorist dictated conduct in order to form the workforce desired by financiers and industrialists. Numerous influential groups fixed their gaze on school children who had no concept of the social agendas these groups sought to implement. Now back to Le Bon, this movement began with the anti-intellectual affirmation that public schools were ineffective in providing a competent workforce and therefore a failure. And then the repetition of that theme took over all the major media, including Ladies Home Journal and the Saturday Evening Post each of which had millions of readers, readers 
were hammered with repetitive sentiments on the futility of intellectual development and steered toward the Taylorist form of so-called education for the purpose of industry only. The Saturday Evening Post wrote, quote, Miltonized, Chaucerized, Virgilized, Schillered, physicked and chemicaled, the high school should be of no use in the world, particularly the business world, end quote. And the Dean of Columbia Teachers College, James E. Russell stated, quote, if school cannot be made to drop its mental development obsession, the whole system should be abolished, end quote. Thus, the affirmation through repetition became the contagion, and the great majority of people were steered in the very direction that the social engineers from various groups, government agencies, and industries desired, and our school system today still follows that. And I won't even bother to comment on the deplorable state of our schools today. Gatto wrote, quote, traditional education can be seen as sculptural in nature, Individual destiny is written somewhere within the human being, awaiting dross to be removed before a true image shines forth. Public schooling, on the other hand, seeks a way to make mind and character blank so others may chisel the destiny thereon. And that is from the Underground History of American Education. Now, one of the major influences on the public school system were the behaviorists. The bell in school that divided each lesson was a result of Pavlov's experiments on dogs, and it was a tool of behavior modification serving to create a specific automatic response. This is known as Pavlovian conditioning. In his experiments on dogs, Pavlov used a bell, and every time he rang the bell, the dogs would come and he would feed them. After doing this several times, he would ring the bell and there would be no food, yet the dogs would be salivating because they would associate the bell with food. In the factory setting, the steam whistle would go off and people would immediately stop what they were doing and go outside for a break, smoke a cigarette, etc. And then the bell would go off again and up they would get and back inside they'd go to continue working. And then at the end of the day, the bell would go off and they would leave. Now, the bell also serves to compartmentalize the mind to where it has difficulty thinking in context. Interruption jars the thought process. And in the school setting where a subject is taught for a certain amount of time, that subject is then interrupted by the bell, which breaks the thought process. And then a completely new subject is introduced apart from the prior one. This interruption by the bell occurs six or seven times a day, five days a week. Well, another behaviorist of note was B.F. Skinner, and he was a psychologist and behaviorist who was known as the father of behaviorism. Behaviorism is a theory of learning based on the assumption that all behaviors are developed through conditioning as the individual interacts with the environment and its stimuli. The mind isn't considered in this area of study. The focus rather is on observable behavior. Well, Skinner developed what he called operant conditioning based on this theory, where the focus was on the causes of a particular action and its consequences. Skinner developed a punishment and reward system to condition his subjects to adopt specific behaviors and eliminate others. He was a totalitarian, and he was an advocate for tightly managed social environments, particularly schools. Skinner wrote, Quote, 
It is in the nature of scientific progress that the functions of autonomous man be taken over one by one as the role of the environment is better understood. It is in the nature of an experimental analysis of human behavior that it should strip away the functions previously assigned to autonomous man and transfer them one by one to the controlling environment, end quote. Well, the Skinner theory was imposed in schools to where his operant conditioning was utilized as a punishment reward system in the learning environment. It was theorized that desired behaviors that are rewarded would continue and undesirable, and undesirable behaviors that are punished would be eliminated. Positive reinforcement increases the frequency of a desired behavior. So if a student answers a question correctly or behaves in a way that is desired, they are of course rewarded. With negative reinforcement, if a student behaves in an undesirable way, they get the consequences. For instance, if the assignment given by the teacher wasn't completed, that student might have to stay after school, which is known as detention. That negative reinforcement weakens the undesirable behavior. Well, this sounds quite reasonable, of course, but in the school system, as in the workplace, this was also used as a means to manipulate and control. Skinner is famous for developing something called the Skinner box, which was an experimental apparatus designed to contain the subject, which was usually a rat or a pigeon, and study the effects of punishment and reward on animal behavior. We can also see that box as a microcosm of the system of control we call society. And Skinner said himself that what he observed in animals in that apparatus could be moved from the pigeon to the human being. He stated that the basis of all behavior is when a human learns that a certain behavior has a consequence. And with that understanding, someone in a position of authority can implement certain programs and strategies that utilize operant conditioning to get people to behave in a desired way. A cult is a very good example of this, where the new recruit is isolated, similar to a Skinner box, and subject to brainwashing techniques that reward or punish depending on the strategy of the cult. Well, from 1922 to 1929, the Rockefellers, the Kelloggs, and the Harrimans sent over $50 million in funding to various U.S. universities for research into the psychological methods of control that have been used on an unsuspecting populace to this day. A populace, by the way, that has no idea that they're being social engineered in ways that have changed and continue to change the very nature of our society. Another method of manipulation and influence was the television. And the television took over every home in America after the Second World War, and it has served as a very potent means of programming ever since. And they even call the shows on television programs. <laughs> and there would be an interruption every so often that would say, we interrupt your programming for the following message. So they're not trying to hide it. Well, flat screen TVs adorn the walls of countless family rooms today, in addition to how ubiquitous our devices have become. And still today, the television is often left on for hours into the night, beaming plastic newscasters, mindless sitcoms and game shows, along with sophisticated dramatic series, all of which contain both subtle and overt social engineering. 
the viewer is put into a trance, whether they are watching television or glued to their iPhone, they're lulled into a relaxed alpha state where they become very suggestible. Of the television, Joyce Nelson, author of The Perfect Machine, wrote, as a real life experience is increasingly replaced with the mediated experience of television viewing, it becomes easy for politicians and market researchers of all sorts to rely on a base of mediated mass experience that can be evoked by appropriate triggers. The TV world becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The mass mind takes shape. Its participants act according to media-derived impulses and believing them to be of their own personal volition arising out of their own desires and needs. In such a situation, whoever controls the screen controls the future, the past, and the present. End quote. Well, she wrote that in 1987, and I would say with the technology we have today, that statement is no less true and no less concerning. The industrial age and the age of technology in which we find ourselves now have certainly brought us numerous conveniences, and they have served to augment the self-assigned agents of social control in ways that are unfathomable to the majority of people. It behooves us to recognize the strategies and tools of manipulation and control so that we do not fall prey to the whims of those who desire to steer us. We must reclaim our minds and exercise the agency that is our birthright as a people. I'm going to finish this first hour here, and in the second hour, I will explore more on this subject, including the Prussian roots of our school system, the techniques used by cults to overtake the minds of their recruits, and more. Knowledge is power, and the more people who understand how social manipulation works and how it's implemented, the less people will fall prey to methods of control that seek to steer us away from our rightful destinies as sovereign individuals. So please join me at themushroomsapprentice.com and I will hope to see you there. Slancha.